Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover in this audio Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 21. I'm going to call this section of scripture Paul's bodacious prayer for the Ephesians. It would be wonderful if you were a church had somebody pray for you like Paul prayed. Our context is this, in the first 13 verses of chapter 3, Paul has revealed the mystery, one of the mysteries, I shall put it, of God. The mystery that the Jews and the Gentiles were going to be one new man put together in a building in the body of Christ. He started out chapter of, in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he broke off for verses 2 through 13, talking about the mystery of the Gentiles, which has now been revealed. The mystery that the Gentiles will be one with the Jews in the church. He talked about that. And then he comes back here at verse 14, where we're we going to start. And he says the same thing for this reason. In verse 14, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. In verse 1, he said, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say what reason he's talking about. In verse 15 in Ephesians 3 says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. For this reason, in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. Well, what are some of the options for the reason he's talk, he talks about? It's not clear. I think the easiest solution is to say because of all the things that God has done for you Gentiles. In the end of Ephesians 2 in verses 19 through 22, he said this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of the God and the Holy Spirit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That makes sense. Here's another possibility. It could be, because Paul could be saying, because I am in prison, having been put there because of my preaching to the Gentiles, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The way you get that is Ephesians 3.1 says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on, on behalf of you Gentiles, and because I am a prisoner, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And of course Paul is a prisoner because he's preaching to the Gentiles. The reason he's preaching to the Gentiles is because the Jews forced him that way because they persecuted him right out of Jerusalem and out of the synagogues everywhere he went. I think it's just easy to say because the Jews, the Gentiles are now no longer aliens and strangers, but now they are built into the new temple, the one new man, the, 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 the one dwelling of God and the Spirit and their fellow citizens with the saints. That mystery, that's what it is. It's for that reason, he bows his knees before the Father. Now, of course, he's bowing his knees before the Father to pray for him, which is what this section of Scripture is about. The Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Before we start talking about the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, let's talk about that bowing there. I bow my knees before the Father. This is not just praying. This is a prayer that expresses deep emotion and reverence. People in Paul's day usually stood to pray. John Gill points out, and this is true, that there's no set regulated posture for prayer. You can find people standing to pray. You can find people lying flat on their face and praying. But I'm going to get, read you some comments by Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown that point out how often kneeling was done for prayer. In the scriptures, 
most of the scriptures are in the New Testament. I've got one from the Old Testament. For example, in Acts 20, verse 36, when he, Paul, had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. That's with the Ephesian elders at Miletus at the end of the third journey on the way back to Rome. He knelt down and prayed. Acts 21, 5, when our days there were ended, we, this is Luke and Paul, Luke and his companions, left and started on our journey. While they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. After kneeling down on the beach, this is outside of Tyre at the end of the third journey. We turn now to Acts 7, verse 60. Then falling on his knees, he, this is referring to Stephen, the first martyr, cried out with a loud voice, falling on his knees, Acts 9:40. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, this is the body of Tabitha, Dorcas. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now here's an Old Testament scripture, Second Chronicles 6:13. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court. And he stood on it knelt on his knees in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven toward heaven. In Luke twenty two forty one, he, this is referring to Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray. This is really interesting to me how many times that people knelt to pray because I never do so myself. I mean it hurts my knees and so I don't do it. And again, that's there's examples of other people doing sitting in other or putting themselves in other postures in order to pray. It's not necessary, but most of the time it is kneeling. I remember one time I was in China, had a bunch of Chinese students over at our to eat in our apartment, and they were so excited because they had never seen anybody do a prayer before a meal. And at these, these kids were all non-Christians, and so I decided I was going to forego the prayer before the meal because there was a lot more of them than there was of us. I thought it might be awkward, so... And one of them said, we want to see the prayer before the breakfast, uh, before the meal. I couldn't believe it. I said, sure, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. So all of a sudden, all those kids interlaced their fingers for, with their left hands and their right hands, and they put them under their chins, and then they bowed their heads very piously. They all looked like a bunch of little angels. And that was the most touching thing. I mean, I, I, before I started praying, I just looked at them and said, wow, look at the piety here. And, of course, not a one of them was saved. So I guess posture does affect, it does, it does affect things. The the prayer when you're flat on your face with your nose in the dirt, that's the one, that's when, it, that's when the posture really shows what you're feeling. That's called intercession, help me God, because I'm going under. But at any rate, we'll go now to verse 15 here where it says, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now then, I've, your note says that that phrase can be, translated this way, from whom all fatherhood on heaven, heaven and earth fits its name. The word in Greek is similar to the word for father, so it can be said that the family derives its name in being from the father. The family in general derives its name from the father. Now, of course, this would mean that all, that this is the, this is the instance, this is all fatherhood. God is the creator father, not his spiritual father, but creator father of all people, not just believers. Here's a quote from Ellicott, the commentator. The translation, fatherhood, is tempting, yielding a grand sense and one thoroughly accordant with the treatment of the earthly relationship below in verses 1 through 4. But the usage of the word is clearly against it, and we must render it family. That is, every body of rational beings in earth or heaven united under one common fatherhood and bearing the name 
as in a family or clan, of a common ancestor. So here, Ellicott takes this as just being a, that God is like an ancestor of a clan because he's out of them all. Now, that would have to be God as creator, not as spiritual father. The NIV translates it different and comes up with the idea that God is the spiritual father of all believers, which is a little bit, well, it actually is a lot different. Here's how the NIV quotes it, from whom his, God's, whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. Now, that restricts the reference more than the NASB, which is the version I'm using. The NASB says, the father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Well, that sounds like includes non-believers too. The NIV says, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So it's a translation problem. The NIV sounds like it's just the God is the father of all who believe in him. Now, just as a general note here, liberals, universalists, love to say that God is the father of all men. He won't let anybody go to hell because he's their children and all. But Jesus himself told the Pharisees that their father was the devil because they didn't believe in him. So we need, we need to remember that. God is not our father in the sense of a spiritual father. We're his enemy, actually. And we can't walk into his throne room confidently into, into the throne of grace without being covered by the blood of Jesus. So there is a difference. But God is referred to both as creator father or spiritual father, and it's not clear to me from this verse which way it goes. Jameson Fawcett Brown takes the NIV's, the NIV's position that Paul is referring here to God being the father of all Christians. Quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, quote, to bear God's name is to belong to God as his own peculiar people. Well, I don't know what the answer is. It doesn't matter. It's kind of interesting. But the most interesting question to me is, the more interesting question is, why would Paul even mention that right here in the middle of this discussion of the mystery of the Gentiles being joined with the Jews in one new body? Well, I think it's because he's talking about Gentiles. Gentiles. He keeps calling them you, you, and it means you Gentiles all the way through these last couple of chapters. And so he mentions that to show the Gentiles have got their name from the Father, and so, by golly, they're worth something, and God has grafted them into the church. I think that's why he brings it up. Now, if that, And I lean to the position that it's talking about God, the Father of all human beings, not just of all believers. Now, one more problem before we move on. Paul says that God is the, he says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Well, we've been talking about families on earth, but what about this phrase, family in heaven? How can a family be in heaven? Well, here are some options. Here's one suggested by Jameson Fawcett and Brown, but he rejects it. Option number one, angels are arranged in families. And so he's talking about angelic families and human families all have God as their father. I'm just like Jameson Fawcett and Brown. I don't believe that. I don't believe angels are arranged in families. There's another option. The translation should be all the family or the whole family of God, thus making all angels and men one family un under God. So let me read it that way. Verse 15, from whom all the family, or from whom the whole family in heaven on earth, from whom, from all the family, or from the whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. And then that idea would mean that the angels and the and humans are all one family together. Now, that seems a little bit strange, but let's maybe give it some support. Revelation 19.10, 
The Apostle John says this, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he, an angel, said to me, said to John, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. So, so there the angels ally themselves with the Christians, and, say, and this angel says, I am a fellow servant. Not the angels, but one angel says, I am a, your brother. I am a servant. I am a, well, he says, not your brother. I am your fellow servant of you and all your Christian brethren. Well, that would fit the context, this idea of family in heaven and earth, the in heaven part of the family belonging to angels, because in verse 10 in Ephesians 3, we read this. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens, the angels in heaven, If assuming rulers and authority means angels, which I believe it does. So, Paul is once again referring to the fact angels in heaven, people on earth, all have father for their father. And the reason he's bringing that out is because he's trying to take a broad vision here. He's trying to bring the Gentiles into the scope of the church. So every family in heaven on earth derives its name from God the Father. So that means that every Christian on earth, is they are named as being sons of the Father, or every human tribe on earth has its name as created by God the Father. We now to go to we now go to verses sixteen and seventeen. That what's the that? We go back to verse fourteen and read this. I bow my knees before the Father that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. In verse sixteen, in other words, I'm praying before the Father. I bow my knees. That means I'm praying before the Father that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, comma will break it there in the middle of the sentence that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory now that word riches i don't have a list of scriptures but it's everywhere in ephesians the riches of his glory the surpassing riches of his grace he's not poor when it comes to grace and he's not poor when it comes to glory that he the father would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man and that's how god the father gives us power is in us, the inner man, the inner spiritual, non-physical part of man. I'm going to avoid the dichotomous, trichotomous dispute. I'm not going to talk about mind, will, emotions, and all. Just, just your. Let's just say your spirit slash soul. Just to avoid the controversy. In your inner man, the Holy Spirit comes within you and strengthens you. The human spirit, being that part of man that communes with God's spirit, or that communes with demons, if the man is unsaved. But this inner man, the part of you that communicates with the spiritual realm, the connection, if you will, between the spiritual realm and the earthly realm right now. That's how you are strengthened with power. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, here we have a problem. Christ was already already dwelling in the Ephesians' hearts. So what's Paul on his knees begging that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith? They were already saved. Well, here's some possible solutions to that problem. The NIV Study Bible says that Paul is asking that God make the Ephesians to be completely at home so that Christ may dwell in their hearts completely. The idea being, I guess, that they could be fleshly and Christ is not really living in them completely at that time. I think that is somewhat awkward and doesn't really do well with me. Here's Adam Clark's solution. Paul is addressing the Ephesians as a group so that Christ may dwell in your Ephesians plural hearts through faith, in, and that you, plural, being rooted and grounded in love. I looked up the Greek, and that is, everything is plural there. Now, against this interpretation, one might make the same objection. How is Christ going to dwell in the Ephesians' church hearts, since he's already there? Why would, why would Paul be praying that Christ would dwell in the 
corporate Ephesian church since Christ is already dwelling in the corporate Ephesian church because the Ephesian church consists of people who believe in him already. Well, Adam Clark nonetheless holds that position. He refers back to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, when Paul says, So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, etc., 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 in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, and I pray that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Maybe he's saying, maybe Paul is saying, that I hope that Christ will continue to dwell in your hearts that you will not backslide and grow cold, which actually the Ephesian church did do. When we read in the book of Revelation, they were strongly orthodox, but they were dead orthodox if they had lost their first love. Maybe this is Paul's way of saying, may you remain with Jesus there in in the house. It does not mean, of course, that they can lose their salvation. Then he says that he wants the Ephesians to be rooted and grounded in love. Love for whom? Love to God? Love to each other? Uh, How about love to both God and their fellow Ephesian Christians? Rooted and grounded in love. Rooted is the agricultural metaphor. Grounded is the architectural metaphor, if you will. He uses them both. Because if if an oak tree is rooted, it's not going anywhere when the wind blows. If the building is grounded with a good foundation, it's not going to go anywhere when the wind blows. Ephesians 3, 18 through 19, and that you, and that you, verse 17, 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? He doesn't say. And so that leaves room for lots of speculation. Here's some options so that you'll be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, which he mentions in verse 19, which I'll read now. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So that's option number one, that you may know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Option number two, that you'll know the breadth and length and height and depth of the mystery of salvation, the calling of the Gentiles into one new body with the Jews. That's John Gill's solution. Adam Clark says it's the, that you may know what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the building that Paul is talking about, the large size of the temple, which is the church. Referring back to that same passage I just quoted in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Dot, dot, dot. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Dot, dot, dot. Verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord. And which you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So there's your temple metaphor. And so according to... Adam Clark, Paul is referring to the breadth and length and height and depth of that building. That's reasonable. Could be that you might be filled up with the breadth and length and height and depth of the fullness of God. This is an option I thought about because he talks about at the end of verse 19 that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And you may be filled up to the breadth and length and height and depth of that fullness. That could be, well, who knows what he's talking about. But let's just say that everything that God's got, you're filled up. He wants them to be filled up with it sideways, long ways, up and down, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Well, now this phrase, surpasses knowledge, doesn't mean the love of Christ completely surpasses knowledge. That, If that were so, we couldn't know the love of Christ at all. If we read it that way, the love of Christ surpasses any knowledge that we might have, and we don't have any knowledge of God, but his love surpasses that. Well, obviously it can't be that. Well, what does it mean? Adam Clark says it refers to rabbinic knowledge and Greek philosophical knowledge, which is surpassed by the love of God. And it could be. But it could be 
it surpasses the knowledge we have of God. We have some knowledge of God, of course, not infinite knowledge of God, otherwise we'd be God ourselves, but we have a certain knowledge of God revealed to the apostles and prophets, but the love of Christ surpasses even that. That's a hard question to me. I think Adam Clark's solution is the best that Paul is saying, look, you can seek all that rabbinic knowledge and you can seek all that Greek knowledge and it doesn't mean anything because the love of Christ trumps it all. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What does the fullness of God mean? Well, it can't mean that we will all be infinite like God is because then we would be God. It means that we will be filled up with all that God provides. So the fullness of God equals the of God equals which God provides. The, you will be filled up with all the fullness which God provides. The fullness of God, the fullness which God provides. Adam Clark says, All those gifts and graces which he has promised to bestow on man and which he dispenses to the church. Clark continues to be filled with all the fullness of God is to have the whole soul filled with meekness, gentleness, goodness, love, justice, holiness, mercy, and truth. And I think that's all we have to do is just say everything we need is there, God. It's ours. Now, here's a great description of that fullness, as only John Gill can provide. Quote, that fullness of things which they may receive from God in this life as to be filled with a sense of the love and grace of God, with satisfying views of interest in the righteousness of Christ, with the Spirit and the gifts and graces thereof, with full provisions of food for their souls, with spiritual peace, joy, and comfort, with knowledge of divine things of God in Christ, of Christ, of the gospel, and of the will of God, and with all the fruits of of righteousness or good works springing from grace or else of that fit fullness which they shall receive hereafter even complete holiness perfection of knowledge fullness of joy and peace entire conformity to God and Christ and everlasting communion with them that sort of makes you want to be a Christian doesn't it Gill is very prolix as they were in the 19th century they love to go on and on and on but I like it because it's a different style and it just just completely describes the wonderful things that God has for us. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And there's the end of that bodacious prayer for the Ephesian church. To him, that's to the Father. The Father is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask. Oh, does that mean we're not supposed to ask? James in James chapter verse four, chapter four, verse two says, "You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask." Now, when Paul says that we have more than we ask, abundantly beyond all that we ask. Does that mean we don't need to ask? No, that doesn't mean that at all. It means that having asked, God will answer even better than we thought was possible. I will say this, though. You're supposed to, you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to ask. So don't let that verse be misinterpreted. A lot of times God will pour out grace on you that you hadn't thought about or fix a situation that you could, can't, could not imagine. In fact, there are some situations that are so complicated you don't even know how to pray. And then God fixes them. That's how much grace and love he has for his children. In verse 21, Paul says, To him be the glory in the church, to God. The purpose of God in creating the church before the foundation of the world was to bring glory to himself. Now, you know, we think, oh, this is, he's a glory hog. People, we don't like people just basking in glory. And they, they do it, you know, athletes, especially movie stars, they do it. But they, they're not open about it because that's, people don't like that. It's all right for God, though. He desires people to glorify him, to worship him. It's who he is. And that's why Christians need to glorify him and lift up those prayers constantly and praise 
When I say prayers, I don't mean asking for things, but I mean just ascribing to God the glory that belongs to him. And where does that glory come from? Paul says in verse 21, in the church. To him be the glory in the church. That's why God created the church. That's why he's got a body of believers. The elect is because he expects people in that church to give him praise and glory all the time. Glory in the church, that makes the church a glorious church. The name of one of Watchman Nee's books. I think he got it from this phrase right here. Now I ask, if you see a church that's full of bureaucracy, sexual immorality, celebrity prima donna preachers, people sitting in mews mute, Sunday religionists who show up for church maybe one, two Sundays out of every month or maybe on Christmas and Easter, people raising money all the time, entertainment, smoke, carbon dioxide, dry ice smoke flowing out over the stage. Does that really give God glory? No, we need people with their mouths giving glory to Christ, glory to God the Father, and then God will be happy because that's what he wants. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. In Ephesians 4, our next audio, we will take up at the beginning of the chapter the question of unity in the body of Christ. Paul has been talking about Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile being joined together in one new man, and now he continues with the theme of unity, unity, unity. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 